do you ever have a hard time falling asleep? If so, no, you're not alone. One third of Americans say they lie awake at least a few nights every week. Now, there are several actions you could take to help remedy this so you can get a good night's sleep. However, according to a recent medical journal, there's another practice you could consider. There's something else this medical journal suggests that could help everyone sleep better. You know what that is? Forgive. Researchers asked 1,423 American adults to rate themselves on how likely they were to forgive those who hurt them. Researchers also asked those very same people additional questions about how well they slept in the past 30 days. You know what they found? The researchers discovered that people who were more forgiving were more likely to sleep better and for longer and in turn have better physical health. On the flip side, they discovered that those who don't forgive tend to linger on unpleasant thoughts and feelings. And according to the study, such bitterness detracts people from quality of sleep. Interesting finding, wouldn't you say? Right? And, it, and it makes sense, does it not? Right? Forgiveness, think about letting go, absorbing the cost yourself, not making the other person pay or thinking about all the, the evil things the other person does. Forgiveness can lead to a good night's sleep. But that's not all. I'm sure you know. As I'm sure you're aware, forgiveness is not only important for a good night's sleep, but it's also very important for two people to be reconciled. This morning, we're going to look once more at 2 Corinthians 14. For those of you just joining us, second, did I say 2 Corinthians? Really? This is making me sound. Should I tilt it away from me? It's alive, okay. I'm blaming that. No. So, we're not looking at 2 Corinthians. We're looking at 2 Samuel. There we go, yes. For those of you just joining us, 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 14 is chock full of relational sin. And, And really, really bad sin. I mean, all sin is bad to be sure, but what we read in these two chapters is some of the worst. And as a result of sin, the relationships we discover in these chapters, the relationships are strained, there's separation, right? As we talked about last week, this is a barrier of offense between us and our offenders. Sin always separates, sin always separates. And there's one relationship in particular 
that our text gives special attention to and how sin creates a barrier of offense, and that's the relationship between King David and his son Absalom. Yet strangely enough, at the end of chapter 14, we, we see these two, we find them reunited. As we talked about last week, as many commentators have pointed out, chapters 13 and 14 form one connected story. And what's so intriguing about these two chapters is that the overall storyline of these chapters, it follows the story of David and Bathsheba, right? There's sexual sin with Amnon and Tamar, followed by a murder, Absalom, murdering his brother Amnon, followed afterwards by someone coming to David to tell him a parable, that was the wise woman of Tekoa in chapter 14, which seems to lead, it seems to lead to David and Absalom reconciling. Yet while at first glance, the end of chapter 14 appears to be the restoration of a broken relationship, it's not. No, instead it's a counterfeit reconciliation. It's not genuine. And we know this is the case because both in our passage and in the chapters that follow, there's one vital element that is missing to David and Absalom's reunited story. That, truthfully, there's a lot of things that are missing, but there's one critically important element to their reunited story, and that is repentance. Faith, many components are needed for two people to reconcile. I mean, just think of your own life right now. Perhaps there's someone in your life who either sinned against you or you sinned against them, and as a result of the sin, there's a barrier between you and them. And in order for there to be reconciliation, first of all, forgiveness must take place. You not only need forgiveness for a good night's sleep, but you also need forgiveness for reconciliation. If you have been sinned against, for you to reconcile with that person, you must forgive them. But that's not all that's needed. It's not less than that, but there's something more. In order for two people to reconcile, the person sinned against must forgive, and then the offender must repent. Only when those ingredients are together can true reconciliation take place. And that's what we've been learning. This section of Scripture, our, our text this, this morning, it illustrates this foundational biblical truth, and that is, there can be no reconciliation without repentance. This, as I'm going to argue again this morning, is what was way lacking in all the relationships in these chapters. There was at best shallow forgiveness, and there was definitely no repentance. And if there is no repentance, you're not going to have genuine reconciliation. You're going to have some cheap imitation that's going to lead to more and greater problems. And if you don't Believe me, just keep reading on in the narrative and see what happens with David and Absalom. So, as we started to see last week, as we began to unpack this, we saw how the author intentionally and brilliantly, I might add, he highlights three failures of David and Absalom that prevent them from reconciling, both between themselves and others. And these are the actions we must refuse to take if we're going to pursue genuine reconciliation. Right? You remember what the first one was? The first thing we saw is that real reconciliation refuses vengeance. Right? When 
uh, when someone sins against you, uh, put it this way, sinners tend to sin when sinned against. Right? Our, our default response when being sinned against is to act out in vengeance. Yet through the failure of what we see here in these, in these opening chapters of this passage, this is encouraging us to refuse to take vengeance. Remember, at the end of chapter 13, David's son Absalom, he finds himself in almost the exact same situation that David himself encountered in 1 Samuel 25 with Abigail and Nabal. Remember this? The similarities are startling, and I think they're intended to waken our minds to what happened previously and what should happen in this text. Notice, in both passages, there's a sheep-shearing festival as well as an offense. In 1 Samuel 25, the offense was between David and Nabal, and here the offense is between Amnon and Absalom. Yet the similarities do not stop there, do they? For do you remember what Nabal names what Nabal's name means? What does it mean? Fool, that's right. It means fool. And tell me who else is called a fool in 2 Samuel 13? Amnon. Indeed, he's called an outrageous fool, right? And just as David wanted to enact vengeance, being offended by Nabal, David wanted to kill Nabal, Absalom wants to kill Amnon for what he did to his sister. Did David kill Nabal? No, because Abigail was there to remind him of this important truth, and that is vengeance is the Lord's, not yours, right? Yet while David held back from taking vengeance, Absalom showed no such restraint, did he? In fact, just like Nabal, who died while his heart was merry with wine, Absalom ordered his men to kill Amnon while he was merry with wine. Here's the headline. Absalom is the worst version of David. He's, he's his life is mirroring that of David's, yet in the places where David acted righteously, Absalom does not. And that's what the author wants us to see. Remember, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised, and he made it clear that all his previous saving promises of how he's going to reconcile sinful humanity to himself, God said through the prophet Nathan that all of God's saving promises are going to come through a son of David. And what these chapters are trying to show us with a bright neon sign is Absalom's not the guy. Neither is Amnon. Neither is David. But that's not all the text is saying. While it's true the text is forcing us to look to a future son of David, this text is also reminding us that Absalom's sinful actions is a reminder to all of God's people that we're not to take vengeance into our hands. Amen? Why? Because it belongs to God. And if we're going to pursue reconciliation with those who offend us, we must refuse vengeance. 
And we also must seek the good of our enemies, as Romans 12 states. Right? But then secondly, we're also to reject false counsel. Remember who, what lovely lady do we meet in 2 Samuel 14? The woman of, do you remember her name? Tekoa, the woman of Tekoa, right? The woman of Tekoa is really similar to Lady Folly in Proverbs 9. Right, in Proverbs 9, we have Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly. We see the woman of Tekoa, she is like Lady Folly. Friend, beware of people like the woman of Tekoa. That is, people who make your emotions and feelings more important and authoritative than God's word. Beware of those people whose counsel is man-centered versus God-centered, especially when it comes to counsel regarding relationships. Beware of those who speak half-truths, for that's precisely what the woman of Tekoa did. She came to David with a tearjerker of a story that pitted God's law and his justice against David's feelings for his son. And David followed the counsel of the woman of Tekoa. He gave way to his emotions and feelings rather than following and doing what God's word would instruct him to do. Okay, so this sets the stage for what we're about to read here in verses 21 through 33. Okay, so here's the picture. Right? Amnon violated his half-sister Tamar. David does nothing. David should have killed Amnon. Justice should have been served, but he did nothing. Two years go by. Absalom is stewing about this. And he plans an event, and he kills his brother Amnon. What should David do with Absalom? The same thing he should have done with Amnon. Execute justice. But does David do that? Instead, the woman of Tekoa gives this heart-wrenching story that's half-truth, that conflates and doesn't accurately represent the situation, to convince him to bring Absalom home. So, here we have, ready? Due to his sin, Absalom is a banished son, yet David calls to bring him home. So here's the question the text raises. Please hear me. Here's the question. How can the king restore a banished son without betraying justice? How can the king restore a banished son without betraying justice? Let's see. Look with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 14. Please turn there if you have not already. All that by way of introduction. Don't worry. We just got one point to cover, okay? That's page 266 in the White Paperback Bible. Follow along with me. As I read, so 
as we learned last week, Joab was the one who was sending the woman of Tekoa to bring Absalom back, and we see this in verse 21 of chapter 14. Then the king, referring to David, said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, does that seem a little odd to you? He, he brings his banished son home, yet he refuses to see him. Does that seem just a little odd? Or maybe, does this not seem odd to you, but does it seem familiar? In fact, if I could just ask, do you see yourself at all in David? What I mean is, do you ever say, yeah, everything's fine, everything's okay between us, but you keep the person at arm's distance? You know what David is doing here? He's avoiding the issue. Right? If Absalom could be kept away from the king, the king could once again avoid the difficult task of doing what he should have done about his son. Just like with Amnon, David is avoiding it. For as we talked about, what, what should David do to his son who murdered his brother? What does God's law require the king to do in matters like this? God's law requires the king to execute justice. Absalom, injustice should be executed. Just like David, because look, as a veteran reader of 1 and 2 Samuel, know how David rightly and quickly puts to death lawbreakers who deserved death, right? This, this isn't a, a foreign thing to him. But when it comes to his own home, when it comes to his boys, as we talked about, David is, is a second Eli. He avoids the issue. Now notice what we read next. See, see if you can, it's kind of an, it, again, the, the Bible is, you know it's inspired because it's so brilliantly put together. But notice what the author does here. He kind of breaks, breaks free from the overall narrative. He focuses on Absalom. And see if you can pick up what he's trying to communicate about Absalom in these next couple verses. Look at verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Men, who would not like that to be said about you? 
please put that on my tombstone, right? <laughs> and it gets, it gets better. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, meaning, ladies, lush, full, thick, dark hair. He used to cut it when it was heavy on him. He cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Now we know, we know he named his daughter Tamar before all this fiasco because it says now that she is a beautiful woman. Okay? Now, but enough about the kids. Tell me, what's, what's the most famous thing we learn about Absalom? The thing he was most famous for was his what? His hair. Oh. Much to the envy of every man, right? <laughs> now, why is this detail important? Well, it's important in order to show the parallels between Absalom and the two kings already represented in First and Second Samuel. Can you think of anyone else in the books of First and Second Samuel who was introduced as being very handsome? Saul, ding, 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 ding. But not just Saul. Remember, David was described in similar fashion shortly before he was anointed as king. Now, what appears to be out of the blue, Absalom's physical characteristics and appearance is described. You know why? Because as we're about to see, he's going to make a bid for the throne. Notice also the comparison with Saul is particularly close. Both are described as the most handsome Israelites of the time. You know, both were distinguished by their heads. Saul by his towering head, Absalom by the hair of his head. And in the following chapters, these similarities are even more filled out for Absalom's treatment of David is very Saul-like. Now look at what we read next, okay? Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence, okay? So if you're keeping score at home, it's been five years since David saw his father, since David saw Absalom. Five years since Absalom saw his dad. And it's been seven years since the incidents with Amon and Tamar. Verse 29, Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Wait, what? <laughs> what? The, the guy doesn't return your calls. I get it. We all get frustrated about that. But you set the guy's field on fire? What kind of guy does that? I'll tell you. 
one who is consumed with himself and his own glory. Notice, um, Absalom is acting very Samson-like. Think of Judges 15. Absalom was willing to destroy his neighbor's property just to get his way. And I want to argue that this action foreshadows the fire he's about to kindle in Israel. Notice Joab's response. Verse 31, Then Joab arose, you think, and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? <sighs> Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come here from Jeshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Absalom is saying, what's it going to be, dad? Time's up. Deal with it. In fact, he's doing more than that. He's daring his father to do the right thing. And notice, Absalom's dare for his father to judge him shows no sorrow for the heinous sins he's committed, but instead shows his commitment to manipulating his father's sentiment. I mean, think of, think of what Absalom could have done. He could have come into his father's presence or told Joab to this message, I have sinned before the Lord and before my family and what I have done. He could have had contrition he could have expressed godly sorrow for killing his brother. But he doesn't. Instead, he flippantly dares his father. Now look how it, how it ends. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Is that real reconciliation? Is that a healthy relationship being restored? No. So what, what can we learn from this sad tale? Well, as I've sought to point out these past couple of weeks, the reconciliation, apparent reconciliation here, of David and Absalom is a counterfeit one. More than that, it's actually what they've allowed to take place is a terrible disease that will eventually ruin David's entire household. I mean, how much bitter fruit is going to result from this phony forgiveness, empty repentance, and half-restoration? But what I, what I want you to see that what is lacking and absent in both David and Absalom in these, these final verses of this chapter, what is lacking is any reverence or any desire to honor God. Absalom, like I said, exhibits no remorse for his sin or concern for God. Likewise, David fails to honor God 
by simply avoiding the whole situation. I mean, you talk about being a passive father and do what he knows he should do instead of being the king and acting with justice. He just avoids the issue. Indeed, he invites his son back home and kisses him on the head, pretending like everything is A-OK. And by way of application, faith, and pursuing reconciliation with others, there's a third element, and that is, I think real, reconcil- real reconciliation reveres the Lord. What I mean is, we must make it our, our aim to honor God rather than ourselves. David was just living for himself. He was avoiding the hard thing God's law required of him to do. And Absalom, he's drunk on living for himself. I mean, honoring God, that wasn't even on his radar. But faith, as God's people, it should be on ours. And that's why I just want to challenge us here just for a moment. And whatever difficult relationship, whatever broken relationship or, or relationships where maybe there's been sin and there's an offense, Let us make it our aim to honor and glorify God in that situation. Let us make it our aim to please Christ rather than ourselves. May we commit by God's grace with the Spirit's help to do whatever the hard thing is that God calls us to do in His Word. Be it granting forgiveness or repenting of sins. Now, I hope and I trust none of you have to be in a situation like David where you have to kill one of your kids, (laughs) okay? I don't think any of you are kings. But you might be in a situation where you don't kill your son, but you have to have a really hard conversation with him. Or maybe you need to do something in your family to enact a justice. You're never going to do it if you're living for yourself. Real reconciliation, yes, it refuses vengeance, yes, it rejects false counsel, but it reveres the Lord. This chapter raises a rather complicated question. I don't know if you caught it or not. But I want you to see is the question that this passage raises is actually a question that is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture. You know what that question is? It's this, and that is, how can the king be reconciled to sinful, banished people without betraying justice? How can the king be reconciled to sinful, banished people without betraying justice? You see, listen, Absalom had no hope. He had to die for his sins. Yet King David refused to enact justice, and instead, he simply kissed his son as if everything was fine. And as we're about to see, this did not lead to reconciliation, but to betrayal. And friend, the truth is, please hear me, we all are like Absalom. Because of our sin, please hear me, we are banished from the presence of the ultimate king, and that's God. We are banished from the presence of the ultimate King God because of our sin. Indeed, in our sin, 
We have no hope, for we're all deserving death for our sins. Listen, justice demands it. So here's the million-dollar question. How in the world can God, the true king of the universe, restore banished, sinful people like you and me without betraying justice like David did? Because remember, that's precisely what David did with both his sons. David betrayed justice. So how can God restore us without betraying justice? And friend, the answer is provided in God's Son, Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. Unlike King David, who refused to enact justice, God the Father did. And you know how he did it? He enacted justice on his one and only son, Jesus Christ, so we could be saved. Friend, this is what makes the message of Jesus good news. It's because on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty you are owed for your sin. On the cross, God's perfect justice was satisfied. For God to be God, for him to be fair and just, sin must be punished. Indeed, your sin must be punished. My sin must be punished. That's why we need Jesus. For through the sacrifice of Jesus, you can be forgiven without justice being betrayed. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, banished ones are brought back home and reconciled to God as dearly beloved children. Friend, are you one of those beloved children? Or are you still in exile banished because of your sin. Don't wait. Friend, let today be the day of salvation for you. Confess and repent of your sin, forsaking trusting in your own righteousness to save you, and instead believe that Christ's work is sufficient to save you. And for those of us who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, we are called to practice biblical reconciliation. We are to follow in the steps of David's greater son, not David himself or his immediate son, which means we are to refuse vengeance, reject false counsel, and revere the Lord. May the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christian, that you have received, may that not only empower you to forgive others, but may that forgiveness, that reconciliation, allow you to sleep well tonight. Let's pray.